Then I went to sleep in Shreveport, woke up in Abilene, wondering why the hell I'm wounded at some town halfway between. Wounded man in California. This is hell. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people through the Treaty of Chicago, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. And Alex, as I ask you during our last live stream that thisishell.com every week, Will you be joining us during This Is Hell office hours tomorrow night, Friday at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood? Uh, yeah, I got to get away from my family. I spend all my time with these people. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. I'll, I'll make something disgusting for the bar. Uh, donut uh, bread was uh, quite a smash hit again last week. Yeah, it's great. Solid recipe. No, go figure. Join us every Friday night beginning at our new time, starting at 7 p.m. and going until at least 10, probably 11, maybe midnight. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that is really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here studios. If you are interested in volunteering, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. And if you are a community group, club or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-togethers, drop by and we'll show you the large art gallery space that is available and is the home of Second Story Studios, which is also up here on the second floor with us. Alex, do you think the art that is up here is going to uh, really, really motivate community groups to want to use our space. People aren't going to want to hear this. This is an opinion I have that everyone gets mad about. I don't like art. I don't. I just don't like any of it. <laughs> it's so I'm, silly. I'm more inspired by like a V of like migrating geese than anything a human has ever made ever. I just don't like art. So you don't like music? Nah. <laughs> Take it or leave it. Today on This Is Hell, it's obvious that we waste far too much food with so many people going to bed hungry at night. Doesn't make sense that we throw out so much food. And if we didn't produce so much food that is wasted, agriculture would not be contributing to climate change as much as, as it is. It completely makes sense that we are wasting too much food that could either feed the world or not producing the food and all at all would lessen the environmental impact of our food system. But what if the obvious sense of food waste obscures the real problems with the U.S. food system, depoliticizing those issues so they do not confront big agriculture in the way it desperately needs to be confronted? How do concerns about food waste, including big corporate chain campaigns, keep consumers from recognizing the real shortcomings being the workers' rights and economic justice that are at the heart of the fight for food justice? We'll learn why it may be a waste of time to be concerned about food waste when there are bigger issue, issues to tackle when it comes to how and why we produce food. When we speak in a few with Austin Brynjarski, who wrote the outline article, The War on Food Waste is a Waste of Time, efforts to reduce the amount of food in landfills produce a lot of pretty infographics, but very little change to a deeply flawed food system. Austin is a Master of Environmental Science candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He has previously worked at the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic and the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA. Austin was the Lazarus Fellow at the Yale Sustainable Food Program, where he collaborated with students, faculty, and staff on academic initiatives that centered food and agricultural topics. He's a teaching fellow on the Environmental Protection Clinic and chairs the Yale Food System Symposium as well as the New Haven Food Policy Council and is committed to community-based food justice efforts. Follow Austin on Twitter at S-T-N-B-R-N-R-S-K. I'm not going to say that again. But on his Twitter account, he does describe himself as a 
buffalo chicken enthusiast. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell as well, and we'll announce our favorite. This week's prize for having our favorite answer is the book we featured on Tuesday's show, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. And of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Georgian. This week, Jeff makes yet another appeal. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what does your startup that you are pitching us do? What does your startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, the person with the best answer. Like I said, gets Rob Larson's bit tyrants. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell yeah we got some more the question from hell for this week is what does the startup do what does this startup actually do austin rm says we market overpriced novelty cookware to the one percent so you don't have to i think somebody already does that Bozena b says an app for weed delivery coming to all states where it's legal thomas h says data huh. and finally martin f says this startup assists poor people in determining how long they'll be able to live in big urban centers before the crushing debt of their poverty rate forces them to move 200 miles away to their state capital. And then he had a link to IamPoor.com. Yeah, don't click on that. No. Well, I mean, maybe click I mean, on that You can. Link. It's weird, though, right? It looks like a website made in 1996. It's the weirdest weirdest thing. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook fa- page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter, or you can email it to us. And again, the person who has the best answer to this week's question gets the book we featured earlier this week, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell after today's guest, and we'll reveal our favorite following Jeff. Allison writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Hello, comrades, compatriots, commodores of dissent. I heard the other day when you read an email from a listener who wanted to help you remotely with the archiving project of getting your entire back catalog posted online. That made me wonder, A, whether you had any plans to provide transcripts with each interview or episode, and B, whether you'd be interested in doing so if you had enough help, especially free help. And we cannot thank Allison enough for asking because this is exactly the kind of free help we've been looking for, uh, not only working on our archives, but doing uh, transcriptions of past interviews or monologues that I've done on the show. Like other, Allison continues, like other members of the doomed millennial precariat, I have disturbingly little disposable income, but I do have the time and willingness to donate my labor. You guys strike me as the kind of people who believe in an inclusive revolution and thus would entertain the idea of making transcripts available for the deaf and hard of hearing and anyone who might prefer text over audio. I know it would be a massive undertaking, but in the absence of any time pressure, we could just eat the elephant one bite at a time so to speak. Let me know your thoughts and thanks. Live from the soul-sucking suburbs of Washington, D.C., I am your hapless, hopeless, histrionic, hoplite, hellcat, Allison. I cannot thank you enough, Allison. This is really kind of you to volunteer your time. We really do need your help. And if anyone wants to help us out here on This Is Hell by transcribing past interviews or monologues, email alex at alex at com or myself, chuck at chuck at com. We'll get back to you immediately as we have with Allison. This is hell. Coming up, our concerns over food waste might be a huge waste of our time as it keeps us from recognizing the real problems with the U.S. food system. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from how we'll name our favorite and the winner gets Rob Larson's bit tyrants. We'll share what we're doing on Patreon this week. There will be a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff makes yet another appeal and Alex will tell us what's happening on upcoming shows here on This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry live from late capitalism where the only only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. We all know we are wasting far too much food. Food that could feed the hungry. Food that may have not been necessary to produce in the first place as its waste contributes to climate change. So all we have to do is stop producing so much food or start feeding it to the poor and problem solved, right? Here to explain why the problem of food waste is not the problem with the U.S. food system to begin with, and it's not the problem that we should be focusing on, Austin Brynjarski wrote the outline article, The War on Food Waste is a Waste of Time. Welcome to This is Hell, Austin. 
Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Austin is a Master of Environmental Sciences candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. You can follow him on Twitter at STNBRNRSK. You write of the almost 30 million lunches dished out of the by the uh, National School Lunch Program each year, comprising some 18 billion calories. Around 21% of those calories go uneaten, according to the Department of Agriculture. This isn't just a problem in American school. Schools, food waste is often portrayed as a matter of global concern. Marshalling statistics that suggest that up to 40% of food in the U.S. gets thrown away, or that a third of the food, the world's food goes uneaten. All manner of characters have made food waste their own fight, drawing connections to both the environmental harms of wasted food and the possibility that uneaten food could feed hungry people. Do we know to what extent wasted food or the production of unneeded food actually harms the environment? Do we have a sense, a real sense of how much harm that does to the environment? Um, So I think the general metric that's thrown around is that food that goes to landfills digests anaerobically and contributes methane emissions, which uh, help to cause climate change. Uh, Methane is a greenhouse gas that is much more potent than the much maligned carbon dioxide. And so the idea is that um, food waste in a very uh, material sense does contribute to the problem of climate change when it ends up in a landfill. But one of the other ways that food waste is sort of thought to contribute to climate change is just the, the by virtue of the fact that our food system in generally is very energy intensive, um, but also that agri- agricultural inputs, um, nitrous oxides, uh, chemicals, uh, fertilizers, pesticides also contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. And um, the idea that these uh, emissions from food production are somehow linked to food waste is something that I try to scrutinize a little bit more uh, in the article. So what contributes more to climate change? I'm not trying to make a competition out of it or anything, but what contributes more to climate change? The amount of food that's wasted or the amount of chemicals that that big agriculture depends upon in putting into the environment so they can produce as much food as they do? Yeah, so I would argue that the dependence on fossil fuel, um, that agricultural inputs at the level of the farm and the use of those chemical inputs at the farm level um, has far greater consequences for the climate changing effects of our food system in in the U.S. and the world over. Um, And that if we had agricultural practices that uh, diverted food waste instead of going into landfills into composting, um, that would have uh, fewer fewer methane emissions. Um, and so so I think the what is a little bit confusing is just how instead of the way in which we grow and distribute and sort of move food as a material around in our political economy, um, the villain becomes this issue of food waste. So, all right, let's say that we didn't waste this food. What impact could getting uneaten food to hungry people have on hunger in the U.S. or around the world? Are campaigners correct that if this food was just consumed, we could have a huge major impact on hunger in the world? So that's a good question. I think um, in in the U.S., I'll speak more to the uh, domestic to the domestic case. Um, in the U.S., you know, there are innumerable emergency food um, providers, be they food banks or soup kitchens, that are actively involved in the work of redistributing food, um, either from individuals or uh, from grocery stores or what have you, to folks on the front lines of experiencing hunger um, who, who need food. And I think they do meet this immediate need. But at the same time, um, scholars and activists have argued that only um, meeting immediate needs and dedicating so much time and energy and political will to um, propping up this emergency food system comes at the expense of thinking more structurally about the issue of hunger and um, has sort of siphoned away political will 
from questions of improving labor standards and increasing wages and making sure that people have money um, and such that they can provision and provide food for themselves. You mentioned food banks. Back in January, we spoke with anthropologist Maggie Dickinson, author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. Maggie writes about the dependence those in poverty have on food pantries and food banks today. But she argues, quote, the 21st century safety net in the United States has expanded to manage growing poverty and insecurity, but does little to alter the political and economic realities that create these conditions in the first place. Do, do Is this the same process that you see happening with food waste? Does food waste only manage the problems with the food industry and not alter any political or economic reality? There are the real problems of the U.S. food system. Yeah, I think certainly. I think um, one of the reasons I what got interested in the issue of food waste in the first place was um, because a lot of the same sort of actors who I think were in the crosshairs of um, earlier uh, iterations of um, people who were fighting for a better food system um, a decade or two ago, um, all of a sudden were very became very invested and interested in, in this issue of food waste such that it became a part of either their um, corporate social responsibility ethic or um, it, it started cropping up in sustainability reports. And it was quite interesting to me that um, those who were once the sort of target of um, being held accountable by activists who wanted either um, greater uh, food security or um, food justice or uh, a more sustainable food system um, all of a sudden, um, the, the, the very targets of the, those kinds of movements were strangely like becoming a part of it or, or really like co-opting a lot of the language um, through under the banner of food waste and food waste reduction. And so um, I think in many ways, this problem diagnosis of food waste and the need to reduce food waste and all of the initiatives that come with it um, are giving a lot of credit and credence and a major path to a lot of actors who I think we would do well to actually hold accountable for a lot of food systems harms. And you mentioned the campaigns of Kroger and Walmart, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you write that last month, Maine Representative Shelley Pingree, a Democrat, introduced bipartisan legislation that would tackle the amount of food wasted in schools. The Maine in intervention of the so-called School Food Recovery Act aims to provide grants to scholars participating in the NSLP that, as Representative Pingree told Civil Eats, a daily news and commentary about the American food system, uh, this would give us the chance to educate a whole new education about how much food gets wasted and why it isn't a good thing to participate in. Everyone and their mother appears to have, this is what you add, everyone and their mother appears to have enlisted in the war on food waste and the School Food Recovery Act would only draft more and younger recruits. Amid a full-scale mobiliza mobilization, might there be an industrial complex that stands to benefit? Might these clarion calls to cut food waste be a case of crying over spilled milk? To you, what explains why nobody is asking who could, who would benefit financially from saving wasted food? More generally, whenever a new cause emerges, to what extent do especially Americans question who this cause may benefit financially, economically, and how much that benefit is driving the cause. Is that just something that Americans just kind of miss in their analysis of any cause as it emerges? I mean, I don't know if I would expand it to any cause, but I think in particular the case of food waste is presented in a way that just seems so commonsensical and so taken for granted that no one really um, takes the time to, to question it, or they they um, you know care about this issue alongside more uh, like other issues that do have a more structural analysis embedded within them. And um, one of the reasons I think this is is just because is, is because of the way it's talked about in the media. And I think uh, journalists and writers, uh, by and large. Um, talk about food waste as this major problem uh, in a way that doesn't go deeper to question, okay, well, who actually benefits from this problem diagnosis? And I think one thing I'm 
I tried to do in the piece um, was not necessarily name any single individual or set of individuals for propping um, this problem diagnosis up. I think um, something that's interesting about the case of food waste is that it's really like this structure that is, um, or this problem diagnosis that is just endemic to our culture and to our politics that um, it has become sort of locked in in a way that it can, it's really easily it's it's really easy to be sort of seduced by it um, and so I wanted this article this article to give permission to people to think a little bit otherwise uh, as to um, whether and to what extent food waste is something we should be uh, concerned about well so what makes that fight against food waste in your opinion what makes it so attractive to so many different people and I'm not I'm not talking about you know, the corporations that might benefit from it, but from the citizen activists who think that they are doing the right and proper thing. What makes this food fight, this uh, uh, wasted food fight, so attractive to so many people? Sure. I mean, I think um, one thing is just like a sort of argument around the fact that waste and, um, you know, the good use of resources is a, is a sort of cultural phenomenon that has been a part of this country for um, time immemorial. Uh, a lot of um, interesting references to rationing and to sort of wartime food provisioning have cropped back up in the way of vintage posters and, and things like that um, in our sort of current moment of food waste fervor. Um, and so I think there is this like longstanding appeal of um, doing the right thing by, by being sort of judicious in one's own um, domestic uh, sort of discipline, self-discipline. Um, but I think uh, the, the way that food waste is linked to this sort of social anti-hunger cause and to this climate change fighting environmental uh, rationale. Those are the two things that stake a lot of um, interest in, in people who are, I think, genuinely interested in, in doing the right thing and in um, improving, for, back of, for lack of a better word, uh, the food systems in which they find themselves. And I think um, because it does become the social and environmental cause in the way that um, a lot of measurements are um, mobilized to suggest as much. Um, it, it seems like a pretty airtight problem diagnosis to pursue. And I think like another, another major aspect is I think the fact that a lot of people see it as a very like low hanging fruit um, as a kind of technical problem that can be solved pretty easily just through better management or more logistics or, um, it sort of has the appeal of a technical problem um, when, in fact, I think it would do us a lot better to consider the, the fundamental social and political problems of which food waste is perhaps a symptom more than a problem unto itself. And you mentioned self-discipline in, and you write that in this food waste argument, households are largely to blame and the solutions put forward to address household food waste, mostly center on policing behavior, whether through more judicious domestic labor or patronizing public education campaigns aimed at addressing consumer confusion. To what extent is the fight against food uh, waste focused on personal responsibility more than any systemic issues that might be causing what campaigners consider food waste? Is this just another example of neoliberalism focusing on personal responsibility rather than any systemic challenges. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways it is. Um, I take a lot of um, inspiration from the author Julie Guffman, who does a similar analysis of obesity in her book Weighing In and the sort of politics of uh, diet culture. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the focus on in, on individuals as the sort of locus of intervention and therefore control um, is certainly um, part and parcel with the kind of individualizing and personal responsibility politics of neoliberalism. Uh, however, I do want to caution, I think one of the ways um, in which 
people, especially on Twitter, which has been one of the best ways I've been getting feedback on, on this article. Um, some people have suggested that, or uh, are, are sort of like in agreement with this idea, right? That, okay, individuals are not to blame for food waste. Therefore, we should hold corporations accountable to waste less food. Um, but I, I want to go even further to suggest that even if corporations did everything in their power to waste less food, we would still be turning our heads away from um, more like f elemental problems of how power is distributed um, and concentrated among corporations in ways that would, would divert our attention away from these questions of of labor and of um, sustainability. And so I, that is like, I, I wish I was maybe a little bit um, clearer about that in the piece. But um, yeah, certainly I think the the punching down um, that a lot of these public education campaigns that aim to consume, to change consumer behavior um, are are quite problematic. And I think the flip side too, um, is that a sort of uh, trope in a lot of the literature around food waste is that in the so-called global north, a lot of the food waste problem um, proportionally is attributable to the household level, right? But in a lot of um, countries in the so-called global south, um, the problem of food waste is a problem of uh, the technical, right? supply chains are not robust enough or there is not enough refrigeration um, to, to, to transport and distribute food or um, there are all of these issues with the agricultural technologies um, that are being utilized in um, these countries. And that's interesting to me too, because when the problem is framed that way, that gives a lot, again, a lot of very powerful actors um, the sort of permission to intervene in those food systems in ways that I fear um, replicate um, perhaps uh, similar historical antecedents like the Green Revolution. You write that much like paper straws or canvas totes, though well-meaning small changes m miss the forest of structural change for the trees of lifestyle tweaking. The object of thrown away food bears scrutiny, even though it is the way we dispose of food, mostly dumping it in landfills, that generates methane emissions, as you were saying earlier. Um, and you pardon out that large-scale composting or biogas generation, which could actually put a dent in this methane problem, often require public investment and political will, something consumer-focused finger pointing does not is that the point about canvas tote bags or fighting food waste that it is to get the government to not invest in a solution and to depoliticize the fight against climate change and hunger is consumer activism is the whole point of consumer activism to depoliticize whatever it is that they're trying to put attention to well, I think consumer activism isn't necessarily a monolith, but I think in these cases where um, there could be some like public interest in addressing these major structural issues, then a lot of these sort of um, very myopic individual personal behavioral changes um, do sort of mollify or could mollify demands for broader political change that could be brought about by organizing. Um, however, I think there are models of what what some activists would refer to um, as consumer um, activism, and that is when consumers are actively engaged in boycotts, often in solidarity with um, folks like farm workers who are on the front lines of these issues of corporate malfeasance or lack of corporate accountability when it comes to labor protections and uh, issues of uh, sustainability. And so um, groups like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers or the Student Farm Worker Alliance, who work with consumers um, in, in ways that are quite political, I would argue, rather than being anti or apolitical, um, those, I think, are actually quite promising in the way they hold actors corporate actors to account instead of um, sort of blunting what could be um, quite political desires. 
You write that there's a rosy assumption that wasting less food would make it back up the supply chain in the most impressive game of telephone ever and signal to farmers to grow less food. But that seems unlikely in an agricultural paradigm staked by subsidies that incentivize the overproduction of four or five commodity crops, where farmers are subjugated by the demands of fewer and fewer agribusiness firms rather than consumers. Farmers are satisfying the demands of the industry, not the consumer. But isn't the industry an accurate representation of consumer demand? I just want to make sure that people understand the separation from consumer to industry demand. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily think so. I think um, industry is more concerned with generating a profit than um, they are with generating or with, you know, meeting the the demands of um, consumers who uh, are very, are, you know, uninvolved in deciding, for example, what kinds of foods farmers grow. Um, and to boot, I think industry is also actively um, a part of uh, sort of manufacturing consumer demand through things like marketing or through through efforts like uh, public interest or public uh, awareness campaigns um, like this food waste one, um, and maybe not this specific food waste one, but I think the fact that. Kroger is sort of um, generate, generating a lot of interest in food waste work is sort of uh, is contributing to a lot of consumer interest in it. And so I don't think it's as clear cut as as you uh, pitched. But So is it possible to repair that disconnect or is that simply how capitalism works at this stage of centralization and conglomeration in agribusiness? Can you repair that disconnect where the uh, farmers are growing for consumer demand instead of industry demand? Or is that just the way capitalism is? Well, I mean, I think in in some ways um, it is a tendency of capitalism, but I also find a lot of promise in scholars and activists um, who are really interested in using um, like legal tools uh, around antitrust to really break up a lot of these giant firms such that they can act more competitively and therefore respond um, uh, respond to consumers rather than to um, you know their own interests uh, but I do I, I do think that a lot of this is endemic to capitalism. And until we have a political system that is democratic as well, um, I think um, it will be hard to have consumer demand reflected in any meaningful way at the level of production. You mentioned Kroger's Zero Hunger, Zero Waste initiative, which they call a commitment to end hunger in our communities and eliminate waste across our company by 2025. How would ending food waste help businesses like Kroger? How do they benefit, possibly financially, from having an anti-food waste campaign in store? Because this reminds me of the plastic bag recycling programs at supermarkets, where they take back your plastic bags, which is you know, sponsored by the industry lobby, the American Chemistry Council, as The Intercept's uh, Sharon Lerner told us back in January. The ACC does this uh-huh. to lead consumers into thinking those bags will actually be recycled. But again, as Sharon explained, they are far, far more likely to be burned or buried. Is Kroger's attempt at fighting food waste also an attempt to cover up the problem of overproduction in agriculture? I think in some ways. I think um, more than um, some of the environmental issues, which I think are, are still there, um, the duplicity really comes in around some of the anti-hunger arguments, right? Uh, f- by claiming to feed their communities, I think they do lend a lot of cover to the fact that their wages are so subpar that um, so many uh, Kroger associates uh, enroll in our federal food uh, assistance program, SNAP, um, which suggests that uh, their wages are so low that they're actually involved in manufacturing or generating food insecurity um, in ways that no amount of food redistribution could ever um, fill that gap. 
And then I think in terms of uh, the sustainability question, um, the way in which these corporations suggest that they are doing right by climate change to reduce food waste and therefore, um, you know, save any number of gallons of water or tons of carbon dioxide equivalent or um, what have you, I think does distract from the fact that consolidation um, in this industry begets a particular kind of extractive um, food production that no amount of food waste reduction could uh, ever effectuate or change. Um, and so, yeah, I think on, on both on both sides or um, when it comes to both of the stakes that sort of make food waste problematic, um, our attention is diverted away from all of the ways in which they are these these very actors are uh, could be held accountable for the harms that they're producing. You mentioned Andrew Fisher's book, Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance yeah. Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. And you point out how it follows the money to show how anti-hunger networks like Feeding America, which has a very you know, good reputation, are largely bankrolled by shiny corporate interests like Walmart and Kroger. On its own, this seems uncontroversial, but in light of the fact that these same companies notoriously undermine worker protections and pay workers' measly wages while consistently lobbying Washington to keep wages is suppressed. Claims to fight hunger are straight up deceitful. Walmart and Kroger both use their spending on the Feeding America campaign to show how much they support the poor and disadvantaged, that they care about those who do not get enough food to eat. And the media eats this stuff up, arguing this is how capitalism gives back to the community, even when right. it does not have to do so. Look at how charitable they are. In your opinion, how much does supporting Feeding America help to fight hunger in the communities within which Walmart and Kroger operate? Um, I don't think I don't think very much. I think um, I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that we should not be um, addressing the issue of food insecurity um, in in a way that meets the immediate need of people who experience hunger. But I do think that as long as we are supporting uh, organizations that have very apolitical analyses um, and are actively disinterested in um, addressing the structural issues that generate the very problems they aim to solve, then I would hazard that we are doing more harm than good. And I think, uh, you know, f food waste is um, not not necessarily monolithic or, um, you know, it's much easier to organize people politically when they have food to eat, especially if they normally do not. Um, but there are organizations or collectives um, like Food Not Bombs, or there are a number of examples across the country of groups that do, do um, participate in the um, in practices of food redistribution that might look and feel a lot like um, the a lot like the practices of these more apolitical um, groups or institutions uh, that are doing the work of food waste diversion, but they're doing so with an analysis and with um, an emphasis on community organizing that is quite political and is concerned not only with immediate needs but also on sort of long-term sustainability and, and getting to the root of these problems. You write that as Walmart works to reduce food waste from uh, farm to fork, as they claim, it underpays its employees and, according to some, has leveraged its anti-competitive market power to support industrialized, resource-intensive kinds of agriculture that pose environmental harms much greater than any food waste reduction efforts could make up for. So they underpay their employees, which forces them to get food stamps because their food security is threatened, and they support an agricultural industry that is contributing far more to climate change than any food waste might be doing. Certainly, Walmart has the ability to pay their workers more money and to make them more food secure just by raising their wages. But does Walmart have the power? Does Walmart and 
Kroger, does the retail industry have the power to change the agricultural industry from having such a huge climate change causing carbon footprint that is dependent on chemicals that are harmful to the environment? Could even combined Kroger and Walmart have that kind of impact on the agricultural industry or is it so big that retailers can't even control them? Well, I think I think they could potentially. I think um, their uh, their demand and and their role as suppliers is so large um, that they do have a lot of leverage in saying you know what kinds of products they want to stock or um, what kind of practices they want their food to um, be grown with. Uh, but because I think that is not necess- because that would threaten profits, and because they like it, w- it, it, I, you, it would be hard to convince me that they would use the immense power that they have to do the right thing. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, it would be. I think they they do have the power to really influence supply chains, and I think in, in you know in some cases they're using the tools of environmental management and of um, sort of sustainability metrics and life cycle analyses, the same tools that are sort of used to suggest that food waste is such a big problem, um, to consider where along supply chains the environmental and social impacts occur um, such that they might uh, reduce them. Um, But at the same time, I do worry that a lot of that work um, serves more to dress windows than it does to change uh, procurement practices. You write that Nick Saul, the CEO of Toronto-based Community Food Centers Canada, has written about how serving underpaid people, the quote-unquote cast-offs of the industrial food system, is not only instrumentally silly, but undignified and offensive. Elsewhere, one advocate neatly summed up the way uh, waste diversion only further bifurcates food access between those deserving of the dignity of provisioning their own food and the undeserving garbage food for garbage people. Is the fight over food waste classist? Um, I, yeah, I think so. I think it um, relegates, uh, or it, it bifurcates our, our food system along this line of deservingness. And um, I think also to, to, to make um, what I think a lot of um, low-income folks ha- have been doing also for time immemorial of um, you know, tr- being well aware of the way in which they are impoverished by our contemporary political economy, to make being um, sort of frugal around food as a sort of like social or environmental cause is like quite bizarre. Um, and I think uh, a lot of anti poverty and um, social justice, like social movements that have been concerned with um, with undoing capitalism and with with taking it down, have used the language of disposability and um, environmental justice movements as well. Have used the language of uh, dispensability and indispensability to um, illustrate how workers are indispensable and um, any any uh, practices or, or dis- uh, distribu- the way in which power is distributed such that people become disposable um, just cannot hold. You uh, write about how most major environmental organizations have taken up the mantle of food waste, most notably the Natural Resources Defense Council and the World Wildlife Fund. So what does that tell you about the NRDC and the WWF? Because we've had guests on our show over the years who have argued that both of those groups kind of suck, whether it was the NRDC <laughs> and how they reacted to the environmental devastation wrought by the U.S. military on the Puerto Rican island of Vieques, or First Canadians' economy being devastated by World Wildlife Fund campaigns. What does their support for fighting food waste reveal to you about those two groups? I think it, it reveals to me that um, they are less interested in uh, problem diagnoses and environmental problem diagnoses in, in particular that foreground race and class and gender and are attentive to power. 
And I think that potentially this is a function of the way that they are funded, right? Um, you know, in the same way that we are critiquing philanthropy earlier, I think um, potentially a lot of their money is tethered to um, interests or industries uh, in which there that, you know, might not fancy a more robust political analysis or an analysis of power that calls into question um, how their funders, for example, amass that money. Um, but yeah, I think um, one, I, I was reading a blog post earlier um, that was written by, or it was an interview of an NRDC affiliate. And it seems like the food waste issue um, was seductive to NRDC because at the time, no one was really talking about it. Um, and it seems like it was a, a branding opportunity, but also a way to sort of expand people, like the public's conception of what environmentalism could be. Um, and then also, you know, food, food waste through these individual, individual acts of food waste reduction was actionable in a way that, um, you know, global climate change is not necessarily always, doesn't always um, seem to be uh, actionable on an individual level. So um, all of the reasons that they are, they saw food waste as this good campaign to sort of take on um, seem to me like antithetical to a lot of the desires of um, groups that are affiliated with the environmental justice movement, for example, um, who know full well that environmental issues are everyday issues for them. Um, and for everyone, uh, and who have had a very expansive definition of uh, environmentalism um, since since the movement's inception, um, and so uh, and you know to say nothing of the fact that the environmental justice um, movement um, organizations and activists and people of color, especially working in the environmental field, have time and again held these big green organizations accountable um, and have critiqued the, um, the ways in which they have not served the interests of uh, communities of color and low-income communities. And so um, I think food waste is just yet another example of that kind of dynamic. We have been speaking with Austin Brynjarski, who wrote the outline article, The War on Food Waste is a Waste of Time. You can follow Austin on Twitter at S-T-N-B-R-N-R-S-K, where he describes himself as a buffalo chicken enthusiast, which I really <laughs> appreciate very much on your Twitter account there, Austin. One last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Response. We were talking about this earlier, and I kind of want to expand on it a little bit more. Sure, what, sure. Happen, what happens to an economy whose focus is the demands of industry and not the demands of the consumer? Is that like is that the cause of climate change? Is that the cause of inequality? Is that, what happens to an economy when its focus is no longer the demand of the people but the demand of industry? Um, yeah, rampant runaway climate change, uh, low and low wages and, you know, food insecurity. I think, um, I, I mean, I don't want to be absolute about it, of course. And I, I'm sure there are people much smarter than I am who would have a much more nuanced answer, but I think, um, food waste campaigns and initiatives and the, the focus on reducing food waste is what, sort of doing good looks like in a, a political economy in which the the interests serve production and not consumers. Austin, this is a fantastic article, and I'm going to annoy you in the future to have you back on the show because this is really, really great writing. And even the one point that you made about how you didn't focus on it so much in the writing about how uh, just uh, blaming corporations and thinking that they can solve the problem too, how that's uh, you know a shortcoming. I, I think that's really great that you pointed that out as well because it's, it's not mentioned in your article, and it's a really great point that needed to be made. So thank you so much for being on our show, and I am going to bug you to get you back on the show. 
Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast in a moment that we are giving exclusively to our our listeners who support This Is Hell. And we have the moment of truth, this week's hangover cure, and what's happening on the show next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what does your startup that you are pitching us do? What does your startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or email it to us or send it to us via Twitter. And the person who has our favorite answer gets the book we featured on Tuesday's show, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, Yeah, I do, but I'm still feeling really attacked by uh, garbage food for garbage people. You like that? Yeah, I identify with that pretty closely. <laughs> you know what? I think that's an album. I can't remember who the band is, though. That fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables? <laughs> no, I don't think that's it. This week's question from Hell is, so, what does this startup do? What does this startup do? I got four more responses uh, via email and DMs. Poopianus Maximus, it's your fault, Chuck. Actually, it's Ronaldo's fault for <laughs> that display name, says... Black pill subscription and delivery service. <laughs> Rock Taster says, who cares? The subscription model generates free cash flow. And Yee Hoke says, Uber for Antifa. <laughs> one last one. Uh, this is an email. Uh, Uber for Antifa? Yes. Who said that? Uh, Yee Hoke. Okay. Um, and then finally, the email. The amount of people who do not know how to make a bail and just abandon their cardboard in the in the bay makes my head spin. It's time-consuming solo, but it's not like it's rocket science. If you have five to ten minutes to stand there watching the people making the bail, you have time to have a hands-on crash course on making bails. Our startup solves this modern cannabis bailing dilemma here at Worldwide Weed Tech. That's from Wrangler Steve with help from his noble grandson, age 13. <laughs> Jesus, Steve. <laughs> He's the one who wrote us the uh, yeah. email about Walmart earlier Life from this Bentonville. week. Yeah, exactly. On Patreon this week, I'll be shaming myself for believing depressive realism. The idea that you can get depressed by having a firmer grip on reality is a real thing and using depression as my brand. At least I think that's what I'm doing when I'm so freaking depressed, but who knows. I'm depressed, so maybe I'm not the greatest at self-diagnosis. Although I did have a counselor one time tell me that I suffered from what they called chronic depression. And I do find myself very depressed without the chronic, which is what I think they meant. And we will be sharing our July 2013 interview with the Center for Economic and Policy Research's uh, associate, Janelle Jones, who was on back then to discuss the study she had co-authored, has education paid off for black workers. As the study pointed out in 1979, only one in 10 black workers had a four-year college degree or more. By 2011, more than one in four had a college education or more. But the share of black workers in good jobs fell from 1979 to 2011. Over the same period, black women saw a modest increase in good jobs with the share rising a couple of percentage points. Meanwhile, the share of black men in good jobs actually decreased, falling from 26.4% in 1979 to 20.9% in 2011. Despite relative and absolute improvements for black women, they were less likely to be in a good job than black men at every point in their study. Black workers at every age and education level are less likely to be in a good job today than they were in 1979. The report came to a conclusion back in 2013 that some political candidates would embrace a few years later. They write, universal policies, including universal health insurance or a universal retirement plan over and above Social Security, would have a large impact on the quality of jobs for black workers. So too would pay equity with white male workers, increasing unionization and further increases in college attainment. But you can only hear that interview and my monologue by subscribing to This Is Hell at Patreon on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin makes yet another appeal. We'll have the question from Hell winner and who's on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was high and also in pain. This is Hell. My guess is you already have half handle. For the Rosas. Welcome to the Moan of Truth, the thirst that is the drink. 
I have coffee in Laurel Canyon on Sundays, some Sundays, below the hills where Joni Mitchell once pondered wealth inequality. Some get the gravy, and some get the gristle, some get the marrow bone, and some get nothing, though there's plenty to spare. But nowadays, at Lily, Lily's Coffee Place, at the Laurel Canyon Country Store, you're as likely to hear dudes singing the praises of Michael Bloomberg's toughness as if you'd stumbled into an imbecile convention. And I, I'm not talking about rich guys. I mean people with bohemian sensibilities, at least aesthetically. It's pretty disheartening. But then I remember that Bloomberg flamed out in American Samoa and that my expatriate French friend Catherine was on my side in the coffee argument. This is not the essay I intended to write. I was sure Super Tuesday would be Bernie's day. No, but it was not Super Doomsday. Bernie's built a big movement, a movement toward things he might not even know he wants, like push-button abortion, the drinking age lowered to 11, government-funded BDSM, the abolition of fame, a sex organ lending library. All of this may seem like common sense to us, but remember the kind of nation and world we're trying to change. In England, the national health is hanging by a thread, while here the dominant philosophy has it that a publicly funded fire department is a drain on the economy and an affront to the spirit of capitalism in the memory of John D. Rockefeller. In the 1980s, Reagan, the gipper they called him, because I guess he gipped a lot, Reagan begins the project of discrediting anything that isn't blatantly for profit. He sabotages the government the largest and most powerful organization at the time, and certainly the biggest one on which the public has any influence. I know some of you think government is a dead end and popular input is an illusion or delusion, but if you took away the government today, completely, with its promises to be reneged on and little carrots and sticks to keep us all playing its game, man, wouldn't that be great if it was gone? People would immediately start replacing its necessary parts. Neoliberalism really hit its stride, robbing the public coffers while placating the people with rhetoric and circuses when Bill Clinton helped the Democratic Party buy into that gravy train, and the rest is dystopian history, leading up to the ascension of Donald Dump. Our system of selecting leaders is, well, it's just bad. A random selection from all of humankind, or even animal kind, or vegetable kind for that matter, could not statistically have installed a more garbage entity as president. Not even a random selection from garbage kind. The DNC is afraid of Bernie, and they've convinced a lot of Democrats <clears throat> that their fear is over losing to dump. Bernie is not the best candidate, says undead Hillary Clinton's bitter, pathetic mouth. A socialist can't win, really? The GOP has cried socialism about everything for the past 30 years. No one cares that Bernie's a socialist because the word is also attached to centrist presidents like Clinton and Obama, two relatively benign tumors in the tumor archipelago. They won, remember? Remember those socialists winning? The real fear is getting saddled with a base of people who would demand better than our oligarchical police state. Now, it's a theoretical truism that health care for all is one important goal in any society, let alone one with as much wealth to throw around as ours. And we all understand that you can't achieve that goal unless you aim for it, just as you can't build a bridge across a chasm unless you aim for the other side. People are starting to demand a national party that will run on the goals, not on the promise of getting halfway to them. Bernie's greatest achievement has been to raise expectations of what we ought to demand from those who arrogate to lead us, and he's increased the power in numbers of those who make those demands. We have to commit to continuing that momentum on through the election of 2020, maybe even holding our noses and voting for Uncle Sleepy Creepy Sloppy Joe. You might ask, why should I reward the conniving DNC by giving them my vote, which they apparently don't care about earning? Voting for the Democratic candidate isn't the same as voting for the DNC. Um, you know, not exactly the same, technically. And alongside you would be people who might have preferred another nominee, too, and are also dissatisfied with the choice they're offered. And maybe you could get to talking about frustrations, about having to settle for less than you think society needs. And you could meet for tea. And maybe you'd fall in love. Yeah. Socializing with people is a mystery to me. I don't go out. I don't know what happens between people anymore. I think before you enter someone else's house you might become friends with, you have to sign a waiver and exchange frequencies, tag your coordinates, 
and then the baby comes out. Am I close? I want Bernie to lead the fight against Dump, but I also want the trend he started of demanding actual change to keep rolling. It'll be hard, but not because Bernie didn't get the nomination. Let's say, in an alternate reality, Bernie becomes president and gets a ton of stuff accomplished. A ton. He gets Medicare for all. He gets equal funding for all public schools. He enshrines the popular vote and gets rid of gerrymandering. He divides corporate mega farms into numerous plots for small farmers. He topples the fossil fuel industry, rips out Dick Cheney's baboon heart with his bare hands, and puts us on the road to a cleaner, fairer world. Do you think the fight is over then? Of course not. Do you think neoliberalism will just roll over and die? Do you think Dick Cheney won't try to claw his way back out of the grave? Evil garbage always tries to claw its way back out of the grave. Look at Nazis, slavery, Oliver North, measles, and full house. We'd have to keep going even after a Sanders presidency. Look, I don't actually expect anyone listening to fight enthusiastically for ugh, Biden. The DNC will have only itself to blame for losing again. Really, I don't expect anyone to keep dealing with electoral politics at all. It's not about Bernie. It's about us, right? Not me, us. We'll have to carry on after the man's days in the sun are over. And how are we going to carry this moment forward? By meeting others, having tea, discussing issues with misguided people, and falling in love with them. That's what I hear. And no, I haven't actually been put off by people threatening... If Bernie doesn't get the nomination, I'm not bothering to vote for any of those hacks. Because I'd hoped it would strike fear in the DNC and they'd think twice before conniving against the will of the people. I like when the rabble threaten. A threat you can leverage. State and local politics and community building are far more critical, anyway, than this quadrennial national popularity contest, which is the same losing gambit time after time. We don't just want to cross the chasm. We want to occupy the bridge and the territory beyond, which by rights belongs to the people affected by how and even if it's used. First and foremost, it's the people's right and prerogative to make a responsible determination, not some absentee profiteers. Bernie can only get us so far. We always knew this. We'll need to go on. We'll need to go farther. If Bernie can't beat the system with all the support he has already, maybe it's not our time. Not yet. But we're closer than we've been in a century or more. Let's try not to lose any yardage. Win one, not for the Gipper, obviously. Win one for the Communards, for Rosa Luxemburg and, and Rosa Parks. Rosa in Fortnite. Arizona Tea and Hot Cheeto Queen Rosa. Rosa Diaz of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Rosa Smith Eigenmann, accomplished ichthyologist. Win it for all the roses. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, I love you. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> it's great to have. I love you. I love you, and I love Alex, and I love Alex's family, <laughs> and I love that other guy. Jonah is his name. Yeah, I don't even know. I haven't seen Jonah for a few weeks. I love Theron. <laughs> like Theron's been doing great though. Oh, I love Theron. <laughs> I. I I, I love, I do. I, I wished him a happy birthday on his birthday. Oh, how nice of you. I didn't do that. It was Facebook. Facebook, you always, you know, it's sort of like, hey, wish your friends happy birthday. All right. But I, I mean, it's good. It's I got to uh, give out the question from Al winner. So, Jeffy. I can't win. What do I care? Stay beautiful. Okay. Love, love you. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hal. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The question from Hal is, what does your startup that you are pitching do, uh, pitching us do? What does your startup do? You can leave your answers still at our Facebook page or on Twitter or email it to us. you got about six more seconds. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal wins a book we featured on Tuesday's show, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Alex, did you get any more answers to this week's question from Al. F5-ing, uh, no. Okay, so let me see. My answer to this week's question from Al, what does your startup that you are pitching us do, what does your startup do is, my startup is a game, and of course, on a smartphone-based platform that imposes upon everyone the end of minimum wage as well as worker benefits by finding one-day jobs paid under the table in cash to anyone who wants them, while forcing off-the-book temps to sign off on all of their rights without any compensation for unsafe work conditions. I call the game Race to the Bottom. The winner gets a lousy, poorly paid, and dangerous one-day job. Unfortunately, the people who started Uber 
which means above in German, already contacted me, stole the idea, and they've changed the name from Race to the Bottom to Unten, the opposite of Uber. Unten means bottom. The answers I most like this week, Yee Hoke saying that uh, uh, the startup was a Uber for Antifa. David saying monetize Anadonia. So this is how dumb I am. Alex, do you know what Anadonia is? Uh, something bad. That's my favorite one, too. Uh, all right. So I thought it was a place. <laughs> That's how dumb I am. Anadonia is the inability to feel pleasure. Uh, let's see. What other ones that I like? Uh, Matt saying, uh, or Mike saying, they dovetail spitballed ideas to disrupt something. Scott saying, a company devoted to occupying other companies' conference rooms to make it appear to clients that they're engaged in thought leadership for synergies related to building sustainable solutions for the future. Nick's uh, answer, it's a right-wing evangelical Christian data mining company that searches for potential voters by cross-referencing uh, interests in hunting, NASCAR, pro-life, small government, white supremacy, and Chick-fil-A. Greg saying it weaponizes the intersectionality of white and privilege. And Wally had a great one. Unpacks concepts and then repurposes them into securitized debt that can uh, be accessed by a hella cool app at the locally sourced muffin shop and leveraged into Bitcoin before the muffin shop goes out of business because more of these MFers buy anything while sucking up all the free Wi-Fi bandwidth. Hashtag make muffins not MBAs, but I'm going with David's. Monetize Anadonia. David, you have won a book we featured this week on the show, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Just send us a message via Facebook with your uh, mailing address, and we'll get that book out to you immediately. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show here at at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Okay, really excited about this one. This was actually a recommendation from past guest Kari Marie Norgard, and she recommended scientist Abby Kinchy, who wrote the book Science by the People, Participation, Power, and the Politics of Environmental Knowledge. Science by the People. I'm looking forward to that one, too. And then on Tuesday? Tuesday, Nicole Ashoff, uh, one of our faves, is back on to talk about her book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. And Wednesday, any idea? Oh, yeah. I got got this whole week's book. Uh, Branko Marchetich will be on to talk about his uh, Jacobin, I guess, slash Verso book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against... Joe Biden. <laughs> I love ripping into the Democratic front runner. It's a tradition here on This Is Hell every four years. And what about Thursday? Uh, Thursday, an interview, uh, nine months, and a bunch of emails to chuck in the making. Uh, Martin Hagland will be on to talk hey! about his book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, which I got from the library and uh, is great. I'm really excited about that one. We should uh, try to get him on as quickly as possible on Thursday so we can talk to him about that book for as long as possible. Uh, And uh, I want to thank all of this week's guests. Asad Haider, who wrote the Viewpoint Magazine article on depoliticization, which I can now say whenever I make a break. Damn, now, Thursday. (laughs) I can say it only by making a break between depoliticization and cessation. It's the only way I can say it. Uh, I want to thank economist Rob Larson, author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. You can follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. Elena Levine, I want to thank her. She is the author of Her Stories, Daytime Soap Opera, and U.S. Television History. You can hear all of these interviews and all of our shows at thisishell.com. And thanks to today's guest, Austin Brynjarski, who wrote the outline article, The War on Food Waste is a Waste of Time. This week's Hangover Cure is a slurpy. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. I hope to see all of you at This Is Hell Office Hours tomorrow night as well. Friday night, beginning at 7 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon here in Chicago. And then back here on uh, at thisishell.com beginning on Monday at 10 a.m. and all week at 10 a.m. Uh, looking forward to hearing, uh, also having all of you listen to the Patreon podcast tomorrow, patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. As always, we want to thank... Uh, Alex and Jeff and Ronaldo and Theron for all of their work, but we especially want to thank you, our listening audience, because without your support, this show would not exist. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is... It's on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.